Uh, turn in your, in your bulletin, if you would, to page six. There's a place to write a few notes there. As we talk about what I'm calling the ten most wanted. And also, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4, or we'll put it up on the screen here in, in front of us. The New Testament, as you know, contains 27 different books written by about nine different authors. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of these letters. And at the end of his letters, there's often this list of names. I mean, he's thanking people. He's encouraging people. He's sending greetings to people. But whatever has produced this list of names that we often find at the end of his letters, like here in Colossians 4, often readers today, they skip the list. They don't spend much time with it. This is a big mistake. For example, let's look at the end of the letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 16. Paul writes, Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him if he comes to you. Welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Now, I know this list of names is not why Paul wrote the letter. I know there's a general theme to this letter. There is an overall point to it. But I'm not going to deal with the overall point in the letter. I'm going to leave that to Gordon, who, by the way, is preaching in Rio today. I'm going to leave that to him as he continues uh, to move us through the Colossian letter. What I want to do this morning is step away from the major theme of Colossians and simply look at this list of names. Who are these people? Why are their names recorded here? Now, we know that all of them share in Paul's work, 
But if you look at them, they don't all seem to be the, quote, ministerial type. One of them is a runaway slave. Another one is a failed missionary. But nevertheless, here at the end of his letter, Paul describes their worth as servants of God. And it helps me. It helps me to think through these names. Because when I think of my own inabilities and my own failures, sometimes I'm tempted to ask, well, who am I? God needs someone surely better than me. Someone more successful. Someone with a better track record who's done more, accomplished more. But Colossians 4 encourages me because it says that God doesn't use me because I'm perfect. And he doesn't reject me because I've made mistakes. Now, I learn here that God gets his work done through me if I just submit myself to him. Who are these people? And why are their names here? For the next few minutes, I want to simply look at them with you and ask, what is it that we can learn from these people? The first name that I run into here in verse 7 is Tychicus. And I just call him a man under authority. The five references we have in the New Testament to Tychicus, they tell us that he traveled with Paul throughout Macedonia and Greece. Now, he was not one of those front men, but he often delivered messages for Paul. And he carried Paul's letters, we know, uh, to Colossae and to Ephesus. We know that Paul seems to have considered him as a possible relief for Titus over in Crete. And he, we know he sent him to Ephesus at just the time when Timothy was needed somewhere else. And so what does this tell us about the kind of person that Tychicus was? Well, he would have to be the kind of person who could follow instructions. He would have to be the kind of person who could take some orders and being under someone's authority, it didn't seem to bother him at all. Why? He didn't have to be in charge because he had a servant's spirit, a servant's heart. He didn't mind being sent. He didn't mind pulling up the slack. He didn't mind helping someone else do their job better. And I think that's why Paul writes about him in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. You see, when I look at this man, I realize that the church needs a few leaders like the Apostle Paul. But where would we be without all those other quiet servants who carry out their work with no fanfare at all, who pack medicines, who give away packs and pencils, who visit hospitals, who write notes of encouragement, who teach English across the street, who quietly support an orphan they've never met 
who lives on the other side of the world, who teaches children in our ministry here. Where would we be without those folks who work under the radar? And sometimes God is the only one who knows what they're doing. Well, let me ask you, are you the kind of person who likes to work behind the scenes, under the radar, maybe unknown? Are you willing to follow someone else who's a leader, someone else who's in authority? Well, then God needs you. He needs a willing servant who can multiply someone else's effectiveness. And your name may never become a household word, but your impact for good will never fade away. Not if you're like Tychicus, a man under authority. The second name that I see here in verse 9 is Onesimus, and I just call him a man with a record. We might expect to find Tychicus in ministry, but, but not Onesimus. This is kind of a surprise. Onesimus was a runaway slave, and in that day, that was a very serious offense. And if you go read Paul's letter to Philemon, we could add some problems to his name. We could add rudeness, laziness, and even theft. There were some problems between the two, between Philemon and Onesimus. But whatever happened between the two, Philemon had the grounds to punish Onesimus if he ever caught him. And so could a person like Onesimus be a minister in God's kingdom? Well, here in Colossians 4, look at how Paul describes him. He says he is a faithful and dear brother. In his letter to Philemon, he calls him a, quote, son who has been useful to him. Now, it's not always known, but Paul is really making a word play here on his name. You see, at the same time that Paul describes just how useful Onesimus has been to him, he writes a letter to Philemon, and he says, Onesimus has been useless to you. And he actually uses that word, useless. You see, the name Onesimus means useful. It means useful. And so whatever has happened, he's been a slave, he's been a runaway, he's been a thief, He's been useless in the past, but whatever happened, Paul is saying right now, he's living up to his name. He is Onesimus. He's useful. And it makes me ask some questions about my own life. Do we have failures in our life that we might conclude or others might conclude that disqualifies you from ministry? Well, Paul knew that God uses people with questionable pasts, questionable histories. You know how I know that? Paul himself hunted down and arrested and persecuted and killed the followers of Jesus before his own conversion. Now, Satan will say, Satan will say, You know, your sin is so great that it completely disqualifies you for service. 
He will say, well, God may forgive you, but he will never use you. And you know what? Sometimes friends may even reinforce that opinion, especially if we have sinned against them. But this story tells me that God can use us no matter what has happened in our background if we have a genuine repentant spirit. In fact, he may even use us to minister to the people we have sinned against. Paul sent Onesimus back to serve Philemon, the very man he had wronged. Onesimus, a man with a record. The third name that I see here in verse 10 is Aristarchus. I call him a man to bear burdens. Aristarchus is mentioned several times in the book of Acts. Acts 19 describes him as one of Paul's fellow travelers when Paul was seized by the Ephesian mob. In Acts chapter 20, he travels with Paul to Jerusalem, uh, probably as an official Thessalonian delegate carrying that special collection to the Jerusalem uh, Christians who were very poor at the time. In Acts 27, he is on the ship from Caesarea, Paul's ship, because, as I mentioned, Aristarchus and Tychicus travel with Paul all throughout Macedonia and Greek. But when Paul was taken to Rome as a prisoner to appeal before Caesar, Aristarchus was with him, Acts chapter 27. And during that violent storm and the shipwreck where Paul was washed ashore at Malta, guess who was washed ashore with him? Aristarchus was. And when the whole group arrived in Rome, guess who was imprisoned with Paul? Aristarchus was. Aristarchus was a man with a heart, a heart to bear others' burdens. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he detailed in chapter 11 some of the hardships that he personally had experienced. He did not want to write that. He felt compelled, forced to tell them what he had dealt with, and he put it down. I want you to look at what he wrote in chapter 11, verse 24. He writes, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. Here's a church leader. And you, like me, may be tempted to ask, how could Paul endure all this? How could he withstand such pressures alone? The answer is, he didn't. He had a burden bearer. He had an Aristarchus with him. And there may be times when you and I conclude that we don't have much to offer God in ministry. But we can listen. 
and we can encourage, and we can comfort, and we can bear burdens, we can be an Aristarchus, a burden bearer. The fourth name that I see here in verse 10 is Mark. I call him a man with a second chance. For what we know of Mark, it really is quite amazing to find his name in this list of Paul's fellow workers. This is the John Mark that Barnabas sponsored in ministry. And he took him on a missionary journey along with another novice, you might remember, Saul, the converted Saul who was later named Paul. And Barnabas and Saul and John Mark set out from Jerusalem. But halfway through the trip, young John Mark suddenly returned home. Now, was he too young? Was he in poor health? Was he homesick? We're not sure all the reasons, but whatever the reason, Saul saw it as desertion. So much so that later, when he was Paul, he refused to let Mark go with him on the next missionary journey. That story is in Acts 15. You know, I am thankful, I am so thankful, that when people give up on someone, God doesn't. I am thankful that when we fail, God offers a second chance. John Mark was a second chancer. And at one point, Paul thought him a failure. But here in Colossians, Paul is celebrating Mark as one of the men who he calls a comfort to him. In fact, in Paul's very last letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes, Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. I read a story some time ago. Sometimes it's attributed to Thomas Watson of IBM. Other times I found out it's attributed to Jack Welch of General Electric. So I don't know who this happened with. But it's about one of the vice presidents in the company who thought of a plan and submitted it to set up a separate division within the company. He was given permission to do it, to pursue the idea, but ended up losing $10 million as the whole thing failed. He told his CEO that he was resigning, and when he was asked why, he said, well, because my idea was such a miserable failure. And as the story goes, it was at that point that either Watson or Welch is reported to have said, you're not resigning right after I spent $10 million on your education. <laughs> have you ever failed and you failed really big at something you attempted to do? Did you conclude, well, God can never use me now? Well, then remember Mark. Remember Mark, the man with a second chance. The fifth name I see here in, chapter, in verse 11 is Jesus Justice. I call him a man with a name for greatness. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. It simply means Jehovah is salvation. And Colossians 4, verse 11 
is the only reference we have to Jesus called justice. All we know about him is that he was a Jew, he was a fellow worker, and a comfort to Paul. And we really can't say that much more about him. But honestly, think with me about this. How would you like to have the name Jesus? My name is Bobby George Chisholm. What if it was Bobby Jesus Chisholm? How would you like to have that name? What would you, what would you think about it? How would you feel? Would you feel proud, prominent, superior, or would it have the opposite effect? Would it defeat you? Would you be thinking, how could I ever live up to this name? Well, what this man did with it was to take up the challenge of the name and become a fellow worker and a source of comfort. And guess what? Guess what's true? Everyone in this room, most likely, does wear the name of Jesus. We are Christians. What do you hear inside that name? Christ. We do wear his name. We are exactly like Justice Jesus. The sixth name I see here in verse 12 is Epaphras. I call him a man of prayer. And actually, this is not the first time we hear of him in this letter. In chapter 1, listen to these couple of verses. He says, Paul writes, All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras was a citizen of Colossae, and he was also involved with two other towns we learned, Laodicea and Hierapolis. You see, he was bold enough to not just stay where he was, but to go where no church had yet been established. He had that pioneering spirit that Paul needed and appreciated. And God still needs people with that spirit of adventure to conquer new territory. But it is not Epaphras' courage that Paul praises here. No. Listen again. He writes, He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. What Paul praises is a man of prayer. He's wrestling in prayer for them. He's struggling in prayer for them. And look at what he prayed for. He wanted them to stand firm and be mature and be assured in their faith. In his excellent book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, Richard Foster tells this story. He writes, once I visited a lady who was confined to bed, and she showed me her, quote, family album of some 200 photographs of missionaries and others she was concerned to hold before the throne of heaven. She explained how she worked her way through this entire album each week, flipping the pages and praying over the pictures. I was a teenager at the time, 
But even at that young age, I knew that the place where I stood beside that bed was holy ground. She had a plan. You see, not all of us are the bold, adventurous types, but we all can wrestle in prayer. And we all can be men and women of prayer. We can all be like Epaphras. The seventh name I see here in verse 14 is Luke. I call him a man man with a gift. And we know Luke as an author, writing both the gospel that bears his name and the book of Acts. But Luke also traveled with Paul, joining his missionary journey at Troas. What was it that brought them together? Well, Luke was a man of many talents, but why was he traveling with Paul? One possibility has to do with Luke's medical training. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to what some scholars think might have been a chronic physical ailment. Luke might have signed on to offer medical care. But regardless of why he traveled with Paul, we do know he stayed with him all the way to the end. In 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he writes this, only Luke is with me. Dr. Luke had a gift for medicine. He also had a gift for writing. What's your gift? What's my gift? What can we do? You know, I have a friend who has a gift uh, in business administration. And when I first met him, that's how he used it. He was in the business world. But later he felt called by God into ministry. And I knew him again in another city as he was preaching for a church. And then he later moved to a city here in Texas and preached for that church for a long time. You know what he's doing right now? He's combined both skills. He's working now at a school of biblical studies where they train ministers. And he has a heart for all those ministers. But he knows very well, better than anybody there, how to run a school. A heart for ministry and a business side. Those are his gifts. I know another man who at one time had the corner on the market and shredded coconut. Now I know that doesn't sound very exciting. Except he he had everything. And he made a lot of money. But he lived in a very modest house. And he used most of his monetary success to personally, individually support missionaries all over the world. And the only reason I know this is because his son-in-law was my roommate, and he told me. Otherwise, I would never have known. No one would have known. And he used his gift for making money to support missionaries. That was his gift. What is your gift? What is my gift? Dr. Luke had a gift for medicine. He might have made a handsome living doing it. Maybe he did. But at the same time, he decided to give his gift back to the giver. The eighth name that I see here in verse 14 is Demas, and I call him the man with misplaced love. Now, where Demas connected with Paul or why he was important in Paul's ministry, we haven't a clue. He is named in Scripture here and only two other places. One in Philemon. He's called Paul's fellow worker. But then he's also mentioned in a final reference in 2 Timothy 4, which says, Demas 
because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas loved the world. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Demas loved the world. But you know, that isn't the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy is that when Paul wrote this letter, Colossians, Demas was called a colleague of Paul. But within 10 years, we know that he turned away from God. You see, walking with God today does not guarantee I'm going to walk with him tomorrow. What is your plan to keep walking with God? Demas had misplaced his love. This morning we've been looking at followers of God and we found all kinds of people. We found those who are bold and out front. We found those who are quiet and behind the scenes. And what about those who had failure? Well, it seems like those people were especially qualified to be servants of God. Because when I think of people like Rahab, the prostitute, and Moses, and David, and Paul, and Peter, and all of their failure, when I, when I think of them, I remember this principle that I learned decades ago, and it goes like this. God entrusts great tasks to those who have handled great failure. God entrusts great tasks to those who have handled great failure. Now, I can't stop without noticing, and if you've paid attention to my title, The Ten Most Wanted, and for those engineers among us, if you've been counting, you know we've only discussed eight people. I've even had a little email exchange during the week as I turned in my title. Someone said, there's only eight names here. And I said, you're right. That leaves two slots, doesn't it? One for you and one for me. The ten most wanted. God wants all of us. Do you want your husband to follow God? Did you know God wants him more than you? Do you want your son or daughter to follow God? Did you know God wants them more? Do you want your mother or father to follow God? God wants them more. The ten most wanted, the billions that God wants. This morning, I hope that you'll respond to what God wants. If you've never owned God, if you've never responded to the Father, then we invite you to do that and to accept him and to be baptized into his name. If, like Demas, you've had some difficulty, we'd like to invite you to make that right, and we'd like to pray with you. And you can pray with us down front, or you can find a dear friend and pray with them. However we can help you, why don't you come while we stand and sing. <laughs>